Great. Thanks very much, Peter. Let's pray, shall we, for the Spirit's help as we read the Scriptures together tonight. Father, thank you for the gift of your Son and for the gift of your Spirit. And we pray now as we listen to your words that the Spirit will indeed teach us all things, remind us of all truth about him, Jesus, your Son. In his name we pray. Amen. When I was exploring Christianity as a young atheist, I was very drawn to Jesus and his character. I was very drawn to the church family, the youth group I was part of, uh, and the life I saw in them. And I began to be convinced I should become a Christian, but I knew that if I did that, I'd have to give things up, because Christ calls us to give things up. And the question I had was, will it be worth it following him if I have to give things up to do so? Maybe that someone here is in a similar position, looking into the Christian faith and asking, if I try this, will it let me down? If I follow Jesus, will he be there in time of crisis? Well, as we home in now on this little reading this evening from John 14, please do have that open still in front of you as we look at it. Just to give a little bit of context for where we are, uh, before we come back to that question of, of what difference Jesus really makes. Uh, thank you, Barry. We've begun looking through this chapters 13 to 17, um, thank you, of John's Gospel, uh, and it's a section of Jesus' teaching, his farewell speech, if you like, to his disciples. And we could break it down into these three sections, really. We're at the end now of that first section, chapters 13 and 14, where Jesus prepares his disciples, and through them us, for his absence, his apparent absence. He's going to leave them, he says, I'm going to leave you, go away. Then he says, I will come back to you, and one day he'll return in glory to take us to be with him. We saw last time that he has come, he has prepared us for this time between his first coming and his return from heaven by the gift of the Spirit. He says, I'll come back to you through the Spirit. The Spirit will speak to you of me, the Spirit will bring me near to you, and the Spirit will unite me with you. We're going to look in the rest of this series at the next chapters, 15 and 16. He then prepares his disciples, he changes gear, and talks about how we have a mission, or he has a mission through us, in that period between his first coming and his glorious return to take us to heaven with him. And the end of chapter 14, that last verse of our reading, you can see the, the change of gear. There, come now, let us leave, he says. Seems like he, he leaves the upper room and he begins walking up to the Garden of Gethsemane for his prayer there. And he continues, chapter 15 and 16, as they walk. We'll see that. And then chapter 17, he then spends that prayer of chapter 17, praying for us and for the disciples. So he prepares us for this interval, what it will be, how it will help us. He prepares us for the mission we'll have in that time, and then he prays for us in that. Isn't that fantastic that he's going to such lengths to help us? So, in tonight's reading now, 14 verses 25 to 31, the key verse really is verse 27, wonderful verses. Now, I hope you treasure that. If you don't know it, you're going to learn it. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I don't give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Don't be 
afraid. My peace I leave with you. Have you ever been present on TV, seen the reading of a will, or where maybe the father of the family is announcing what he's going to bequeath, leave to his family? So, John, I'm going to leave you my precious stamp collection. Um, Sarah, you get my precious antique vase, and so on. Jesus here is leaving a bequest to his followers, and it's, do you see that? My peace. My peace I leave you. In the time between his crucifixion, resurrection, return to glory, and his return in glory, we have his peace. It's his gift. Now he says here three things about this peace. I've put them on the screen there, um, just to remind you what I'm going to say, just very quickly. It's his peace. My peace I give you. As God's son, he is divine. He's the source of all true peace. And as he walks in the suffering of his own journey to the cross and demonstrates supernatural peace in that time, he says that peace will be yours too in your trials. It's his peace for us. It's also, it's objective. It's a peace he's going to win on the cross for us by shedding his blood to win peace with God. It's based on his life, his death, and his resurrection, and his promises. It doesn't stand on my feelings. I I don't always feel peaceful. But I have his peace. It's objective. It's also, where the world's peace, we might find peace sometimes from uh, a nice evening out, or a relationship, or from money. Those things are temporary. They're partial His peace is complete and permanent, everlasting. And it is life-changing. It's transformative. He says, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives, permanent, life, long-lasting, objective. And he says, so don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. This peace will make the difference. That's a great, precious gift, isn't it, that he's left us? What a bequest. And what he does in the rest of our reading, I think, is that he explains three ways that his peace comes to us. You know, we say, well, that's a wonderful promise. Your peace, objective, lasting, unique. But but how? What's it feel like? How will I find it? Well, he says three things, three ways that you will know my peace. Here's the first one. By the help of the Spirit. We saw a little bit of this last week as well. He's not going to remain with his disciples much longer. He's going to be betrayed and crucified and he'll go to glory after resurrection. But he said, I will come back. Because I know that you need my help. I won't be here to teach you any longer, to show myself to you. But I will come to you in the Holy Spirit. I'll ask the Father, he'll send you another counsellor. Verse 26, whom the Father will send in my name, and he will teach you all things, many things, and he'll remind you of everything that I have taught you. If you read John's Gospel, you see so far, several times the disciples are just unable to grasp what he's saying. They're always asking questions because they can't understand. And we, I, am the same. 
But Jesus says, after I've been exalted to heaven in glory, I will send the Holy Spirit to be your teacher and you'll begin to grasp these things. The other side of Easter, by the Spirit, it'll make sense. You'll see why I've come, why I die, how I rise again, and what your mission is on the earth. Now, we saw last time that that word counselor, it's translated in in our versions in the uh, seats in the church here. It's a slightly misleading term nowadays. A counselor, we think of as someone who, who helps us to unearth our feelings and work through them and so on. Really valuable, and of course the Spirit does do that. But the word is probably better translated as, as our helper or our strengthener or our teacher. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, gives us the holiness of Christ, step by step, by teaching us the words of Christ. He will teach you everything I've told you. He will, the word is, he'll illumine your hearts, he'll shine my truth into your hearts so that you can grasp God's purposes you can see God's plan and you can join in God's mission he will teach you he'll remind you great promise now the promise is clearly first of all for the disciples that he is speaking to in the upper room through whom in God's grace we receive the new testament they wrote this John is one of them. Great promise that we can trust their words because the Spirit has helped to write them. But this is surely also a promise for every believer in another sense. If if you tonight follow Christ, you have the Spirit of Christ in you. That's a promise. And therefore, you have a helper, a teacher, so that you can hear and understand Christ's words. As you read the Gospels, you will see and understand more every time of his actions and his words for you. And call them to mind when you need them. So that's the first thing, isn't it? How do we find this peace that the world cannot give? Well, because the Holy Spirit will teach us, will show us Christ every day that we ask him to and we open the Scriptures. Now, perhaps you are tonight and you're you're looking into the Christian faith. You're beginning to hear God speak to you through his word, through the spirit, through people in the church, as so often we do when we start to listen. I would urge you, if that's you, just to be open to hearing God speak. Ask him to do that. As you read Jesus' words in the Bible, ask him to be your teacher perhaps come to the discover group and ask him to speak to you there too maybe though you are a follower of christ and you've sometimes had other christians say to you things like you know um, god speaks in other ways than the bible and people say i I feel god is saying this to me and sometimes you think well hang on that doesn't sound quite like what the bible says And this verse that the Spirit will remind you of all I've told you is a great reminder that we should never separate the Word and the Spirit. The Spirit's the author of the Word, after all. There's no, as it were, separate revelation of God through the Spirit that's detached from the revelation in Christ. He speaks to me by helping me understand and live out 
the words of Christ. I know of a church where the vicar went about, I think about five years ago, a place in the Midlands, um, and he kindly said that when he went there, the congregation, they love singing hymns and the kind of religious things, but they really knew nothing of the Bible. They hadn't been taught the Bible ever before. They didn't really know Christ, in fact. And slowly, patiently, he has taught the words of Jesus to that congregation over these five years. Um, He's prayed for the Spirit to speak through the words to them. And that church is gradually becoming known as a place where Christ is known and loved and his peace that the world cannot give is experienced. Churches that take every opportunity to read and hear the words of Jesus, relying upon the Spirit to be our teacher, not separating those two, are places where Christ is real and his peace is known. That's why we read the word, why we preach on it, why we encourage us to be looking at it together in the week, read it ourselves in one-to-ones and so on. Jesus gives the help of the Spirit. That's, the, that's probably the main thing, the, these three things we'll look at tonight. We find his peace as we rely upon the Spirit that he's given us. The help of the Spirit. Secondly, a bit quicker on this one, the joy of his glory. This is verses 28 and 29. The joy of his glory. He's told his disciples that I will leave you. I'm going to return to the Father. And they are baffled as yet as to how that can possibly be good news. It is a bereavement for them. They are losing him, at least physically. And so he explains in verse 28 that his departure actually is not only for their good, because he'll send the Spirit, it's actually for his good, for his glory. Slightly difficult to see what he says here. Just have a look at it with me. Um, He says, you've heard me say, I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. If you loved me, implication, you don't really. If you love me, you would be glad that I'm going to the Father. For the Father's greater than I. What's he mean there? He is challenging the disciples and perhaps us, at least in a mild way, that... The sorrow they feel at him being physically absent from them. The sorrow we feel that we can't see Jesus today is not only misplaced because he's in glory and we have the spirit, his spirit in us, it's actually potentially selfish. Wanting to keep Jesus here, as it were, when actually his place is at the Father's side in glory. Because, remember, he he left heaven for earth. He set aside glory for humanity as one of us. He left his father's throne above, as the hymn says. He became temporarily less than the father. The father's greater than I, he says. Not because he's less divine. He's still son of God on earth. One with the father. But temporarily taking human form. It's a bit like if, just imagine, hypothetically, that one of the, one of the royal family um, chose to set aside their royal status and move to somewhere like North America, maybe. Now, would they be less human than the queen? No. They, we in fact, we are equal with the queen, aren't we? We're all human in nature. 
But they would be less, wouldn't they, in, in status, no longer members of the royal family. That's what Jesus means, I think, when he says the Father's greater than I. One in nature, one in divinity, but greater in status because he is glorified in heaven, not humbled on earth. So what's Jesus saying? He's saying, look, the Father's greater than I. It is good news for me and therefore for you that I return to glory. If I truly love Jesus, I will rejoice that in heaven he once again has the glory which he left for a time on earth. The joy of his glory. It means peace for me because I I appreciate, I see, I wonder, I delight that he is now again where he should be, seen by the universe in his glory. So it's glorious for him. But actually also, it is good for us. It means peace for us as well because unless he goes to the Father... He cannot open the way through his blood on the cross for me to go there one day too. I am the way, he says. Unless he goes to the Father, he cannot send the Spirit so that I can know his presence now. And unless he goes to the Father, he cannot then prepare a place, return, and one day take me to be with him in glory forever. The joy of his glory. Taking the funeral of a wonderful Christian lady a few years ago, I was so encouraged by um, her widowed husband, by the, the peace he said he had in this extraordinary time of trial and loss for him. Grieving as his heart was, uh, with every reason to be troubled and afraid, he said more than anything he felt the peace of Christ. Because he says, um, I know where Christ is, I know that he's in glory, he's risen. He's with the Father, and I know, therefore, that she is there too. I know that he is reigning. His purposes are good, and I can trust him. That's the joy of the glory of Jesus. Maybe some of us here experiencing troubled hearts or anxious about a difficult relationship or a situation that we're going through. And he says, doesn't he here, turn to me. Turn to me now in my glory. Ask for my peace. Take hope that I have gone through trial to glory. That whatever I experience now, he is reigning for good in glory. And that he from there has sent his spirit to set our hearts at rest. So, He gives us peace because he gives the help of his spirit. We know the joy of his glory, but also, lastly, because of the proof of his love. Verses 30, 31, the last two verses. What Jesus does is he gives, first of all, a warning. Verse 30, I will not say much more to you. His time is short now. For the prince of the world is coming he means Satan the evil one and he's reminding us here that in Jesus' arrest well betrayal arrest and crucifixion at work is not simply the work of Judas the betrayer or Pilate the Roman governor uh, or the chief priests who hate him underneath all of that is the work of Satan 
the prince of this world, the one whom God has allowed a limited rule in the hearts of those that don't yet follow Christ, the prince of this world. And he's saying, isn't he, that the cross of Christ is not therefore, his death is not therefore just an act of injustice, though it is that, it's actually an act of hatred, of spiritual conflict between God and Satan. A place of trial for Jesus. But you see the massive double reassurance that he then gives. First of all, it's a one-sided conflict. Only one side is going to win this. He says, Satan has no hold over me. No hold over me. What he means there is that Satan, whose name means the accuser, who loves to point to our sins and hold them against us before God, he has no hold on Jesus. He can't, as it were, pin anything, a single sin or crime on Jesus. I'm innocent, he says, of anything. Nor can Satan hold Christ within death. Death cannot hold him. The the sting of sin that is death has been drawn because Christ is eternal. And he'll beat it. He'll rise. Jesus' purity, his power, are beyond Satan's reach. One writer puts it this way. He says, um, Satan came to Adam and Eve and found weakness. He came to Noah and Abraham and the saints and found the same. But he came to Christ and found nothing. He has no hold on me, he says. That's the first bit of good news. But there's another bit of good news too which is his love. He says in verse 30, uh, the prince of the world comes so that the world may know that I love the Father and I do exactly what the Father's commanded me. See what he's saying there? It's extraordinary, isn't it? He's saying, I'm going to die to demonstrate my love, not just my victory, but my love. And not just my love for you, that is why I die, because I love you, I give my life. But even more, he says, I die to show my love for the Father. My obedience, my willing obedience to his saving plan. Isn't that extraordinary? He said a little while back in John that it's as we obey him that we prove our love for him. And now he says... It's because I obey my Father that I prove my love for him. The absolute oneness of mind and heart and nature I have with my Father. We are inseparable. And the world will see that. His love proves his obedience to the pattern of Scripture, to the plan of God, and even to death. His oneness is proven by his sacrifice. Maybe someone here, you are avidly searching the scriptures, reading this gospel, asking who really is this? Could he be not just man but God's son? And perhaps in this extraordinary, willing, loving obedience to the Father, you see the oneness, the divinity of Christ. Proven. Perhaps some of us here, we've followed Christ for years and, 
uh, we delight to be reminded of, of his extraordinary love, not only for me, for us, but for the Father, that he now shares and enjoys in glory. And tonight you can just use some of our songs, perhaps, to praise him, to adore him for that. You can spend some time this week reflecting on that extraordinary last verse. I will show the world my love because I do as the Father commands. Maybe you could pray, we could all pray this week, couldn't we, for someone that we know who doesn't yet know Christ, that they may read this gospel, read these words, perhaps with us, and see the wonder of his love, the proof of his love, which he's given on the cross. So, my peace, he says, I leave with you, my peace I give you. Don't let your hearts be troubled Don't be afraid. We've seen, haven't we, that whatever may come in life, whatever trials we go through, whatever he calls us to give up, all I give up for Christ is worth it for what he gives me. Yes, in eternity, but even in the peace he gives now. As we go through losses and fears and trials and griefs, may we each know that peace that the world cannot give through the help of his spirit, the joy of his glory, and the proof of his love. Let's pray. My peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives. Lord, for those of us tonight who are deeply anxious and troubled, in Christ, in the Spirit, in your promises, in your people, may we find your peace that is yours, that is lasting and secure, and is objective through your Spirit, through your glory, and through your cross. Show your help and your joy, and your love. And for us all this week, may we stand and speak and live for you with fresh joy and peace as we seek to point others to this gift which you alone give. In Jesus' name, amen.